Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We have so many voices that fill our minds. Last week, a friend of mine, who also happens to be a pastor in West Texas, he received a letter in the mail, and with his permission, I'd like to share with you some of what that letter said. To my faithful servant, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for your faithful service to the kingdom of darkness. I have many disciples throughout the world, and you are one of my personal favorites. I consider you a chip off the old block, as they say, because you are a master of deception, like myself. Thank you for your tireless efforts at twisting biblical scriptures, quoting selected scriptures out of context, and obfuscating clear passages to confuse and deceive your congregation. I am making great strides in the corruption of families, communities, and nations, and could not accomplish this without key players such as yourself. Disciples like you make my job so much easier. The members of your church are on the fast track to hell according to plan, and the people like you are not only shoving them over the edge, but convincing spiritually ignorant people in the community to cheer them on as they fall. Great job! As I said, my plan could not move so smoothly without faithful disciples like yourself. Please continue doing what you're doing 
as it is quite effective. Your loving Lord of darkness, Satan. The author even signed his name at the end of the typed letter. Now, in addition to the fact that this sounds like something straight out of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, I have to admit, this is one of the more artfully crafted pieces of hate mail that I've ever seen. So I have to give the author credit for that. It is sad to say, though, that this kind of feedback is not all that uncommon. Most of the pastors I know have files, either digital or actual paper files, of letters like this that they have received from people who vehemently disapprove of their work, which usually means they said something in a sermon that stepped on their toes a little too much. But most pastors that I know also keep another file. Letters of affirmation and love and support, hopefully that file is a lot bigger than the other file. But we need them both to remind us of the delicate and supremely important nature of the work that we do every time we stand in a pulpit and interpret scripture for our place and time. And so today, as we approach the scripture, a piece that addresses some of the biggest topics in all of the theological imagination, topics like sin and evil and the very nature of God, let us do so with a spirit of humility and in prayer, echoing the words of the psalmist, Lord, we know the gravity of this moment. We feel the heavy responsibility of interpreting your word for our world, and so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, pastors are not the only people with files of hate mail and fan mail. No, no matter what we do professionally, academically, or in our spare time, we all deal with voices, both external and internal, that make us doubt who we are and make us worry that we are never going to be good enough. Maybe your voices don't come in the U.S. Postal Service with the return address of Hell, Michigan, which is where this letter said it was from. <laughs> A real place, I googled it. Instead, maybe the voices come from comments on our social media pages, remarks from a friend in the hallway between classes or between meetings. Maybe the words come from feedback from a supervisor or even in conversations with loved ones, people who know us best and also know exactly how to push the buttons. Maybe the messages are a little more subtle than that. Maybe, they, uh, maybe the messages uh, we receive and file away in the back of our minds come from magazines or TVs or newspapers. Maybe they come from TikTok videos or Instagram posts that remind us how we should look, how we should dress, and how we should decorate our homes. Whether we like it or not, y'all, the world is filled with messages, both subtle and overt, messages that shape our ideas about ourselves, about our neighbors, and even about God. Though these messages are coming at us from more directions than ever these days, 
And though they seem to be coming at a faster pace than ever before, the truth is that we have always been filled with voices, both external and internal, that fill our minds and compete with the divine voice of our Creator, the one who made us, the one who named us beloved, and the one who, in Genesis, just two chapters before the one we read today, looked at all of creation, humanity included, and said, this is good. The first example, of course, of those competing voices shows up in the snake of Genesis 3. Now, much is written about the meaning and the significance of the serpent in this ancient story. In the second century, Justin Martyr would be among the first apologists or theologians to make the connection between the serpent and the garden and Satan himself. Justin Martyr believed that Satan, disguised as the serpent, participated in the fall of humanity by deceiving the woman in the Garden of Eden and then through her, Adam. And then 200 years later, someone by the name of Tertullian, another famous Christian apologist who I know you all are reading and posting on Goodreads, argued that because Satan's, because of Satan's deception of Adam, the entire human race through Adam's seed became infected with damnation. Then a hundred years later, someone by the name of Augustine continued to just keep building on this line of thinking, crafting what we know as the doctrine of original sin, which states that because of Adam and Eve, all of us, all of humankind, is born into a state of sin. That we do not commit sin, rather we contract it like a disease from our ancestors just by nature of being human. And though these ideas are not explicitly fleshed out in the Bible, they have dominated much of Christian thought and they have eventually become the foundation of a theology that necessitated God's sacrificial act on the cross to atone for the victory earned by Satan in the garden. This theology developed hundreds of years after Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and was reinterpreted in the Middle Ages using the feudal language and imagery of a theologian named Anselm in his theory of sacrificial atonement. And though it is just one of many, it still holds a prominent spot in the minds of Christians today, and it all began with Genesis chapter 3. This is why this text is so hard to read and interpret for us today because there are so many voices from 2,000 plus years of history shaping the way we look at it. Some scholars, both ancient and modern, interpret the story a little differently than Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Augustine and Anselm. Jennifer, I'm sorry, um, Danielle Stroyer, who is a contemporary theologian and pastor, she writes in a book called Original Promise that in the ancient world, serpents were a symbol of transformation, a symbol of transformation because their venom held the possibility of both medicine and poison. Serpents were a symbol of transformation because their venom held the possibility of both poison and medicine. 
And given that the Genesis story never identifies the serpent as anything other than a natural part of God's created order, one could say that our story, the human story, begins somewhere within that same paradox of possibility, somewhere between poison and medicine. Somewhere between the poisonous voices that drown out the voice of God and those that are more like medicine offering healing and grace and love. God told Adam before Eve was created, which I think is a very important detail, God told Adam that if they ate the fruit of the tree, they should die. And though their rebellious bites did not end up leading to an untimely death, the first human beings did experience a death of sorts. It was a death of their innocence. The tree didn't cause their physical death, if you read the story. It was instead an existential death, the death of the naive and protected children that once roamed the garden free of shame and guilt, free of doubt and insecurity, free of comparison and competition, free of fear and the heavy responsibility that accompanies all of those more grown-up things. Y'all, this is a coming-of-age story. It is a transitional story that leads us from idealism to realism. It is a story of transformation as the first human beings begin to step out on their own, exploring their own humanity for all its freedom and all its consequence. It is a coming-of-age story that describes the sometimes painful and complicated realities within which most of life happens. Life, human life, lived between the paradox of poisonous and medicinal voices, all competing for our attention, all shaping our ideas about ourselves, about our neighbors, and even about our God. This being said, wouldn't it be nice if we could somehow rid ourselves of all the poisonous voices, of all the external messaging that reminds us of all the stuff we don't have and all the ways that we will never measure up. And wouldn't it be so nice if we could silence the internal voices as well, the ones that overwhelm us with shame and insecurity and cause us to doubt the most important truth of our very existence, that God loves us just as we are. Wouldn't it be nice if we could live in a Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 world where it is just us and God walking together through the gardens of life? I think it's really neat that up to this point in the Genesis narrative, the only voice present with creation was the voice of God. And God uses God's voice in those first two chapters to create and affirm. Remember the epic words of chapter one, where God speaks, let there be light, and light is created. And then after spurts of creative voice, God pauses and takes a rest and looks back and looks upon all of creation. And do you remember what God says then? It is good. 
And then God gave some instructions, setting boundaries up in an attempt to protect and shield Adam and Eve like a loving parent trying to protect her children by monitoring the messages, by monitoring what they watch on YouTube or the music that they listen to, or just telling them, you know, not to drive too fast or stay out too late, advice that every loving parent hopes their children will receive so that they can delay the adult human realities of grief and trouble and heartache just a little bit longer. In this same way, God is trying to protect humanity by saying, you are so good and I love you. Just stay away from that tree so I can protect you just a little bit longer. But as soon as God's voice quiets in the narrative, another voice slithers into the scene and calls everything into question. Now some might call that voice sin as it blurs the lines between good and evil, ultimately luring Adam and Eve to eat of that forbidden fruit. But some might also contend that that voice is a representation of all the voices that speak to us and call us to question the goodness of God and the blessing of belovedness that God has spoken over us. There is a poem in the Lenten devotional guides. Some of you may have read it this week. It's written by Reverend Sarah R. Speed, and it is called, Who Will You Listen To? When I read it in preparation for this time together, I couldn't imagine a better way to summarize and apply the text from Genesis as we think about the voices and how they are competing for attention in the Garden of Eden. So I want to share her words today. The poem is called, Who Will You Listen To? Twitter or the BBC, the ads on late-night television, the wind as she blows, the echo of children playing, the quiet snow, the ice bucket challenge, the phone when it rings, your pastor, your mother, your doctor, your gut, the tension in your shoulders, the restaurant singing happy birthday, audiobooks, TED Talks, the rhythm of the music, the coffee drip in the morning, your therapist, the wisdom of the Enneagram, the way your heart comes alive when you are being creative, the man on the corner asking for change, the kid on the subway selling chocolate, the labels on the makeup bottle that promise timeless beauty, the magazines that tell you you need timeless beauty, astrology, the Dow Jones, the hiss of the radiator, the pitter-patter of little feet, financial advisors, the top 40 pop, the top 40 country, the New York Times, the rumor mill, the book of Psalms, your sense of self, Jesus, when he says, I am with you always. Friends, we live our whole lives in a sea of compelling voices. We live in a world that is not safe or protected or simple, rather a world caught in a paradox of possibility between poison and medicine. 
And we have the opportunity to choose over and over and over again. Will we give our attention to the voices of the snakes in our lives? Or will we listen instead for the voice of God that is crying out, constantly saying and trying to get through to us, saying, you are good, you are loved, you are held in grace, and you belong to God. Who will you listen to?